Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ed Search Podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. My name is Tony Wan, managing editor at Ed Search. President Joe Biden has made reopening most K-12 schools as one of his top priorities for the first hundred days of his administration. With COVID-19 vaccinations now rolling out across the country, there's hope that that will happen. But there is also a sense of added urgency as new strains of the coronavirus are emerging. We are in a race right now between vaccine distribution and between these variants becoming more common. And while we may be plateaued and starting to see fall in cases across the U.S., maybe, hopefully, um, that could turn right back around if these, do- if these new strains you know, take hold and have a big impact on schools. That's Asaf Bitten. He is a primary care physician, public health researcher, and executive director of Ariadne Labs, a joint center for health systems innovation at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Since the pandemic outbreak last March, his team has been researching safety protocols and sharing them as checklists to guide the public. Toward the end of spring, his center partnered with the Learning Accelerator and the One Eight Foundation to create what they called the Parabola Project, an effort to provide school leaders with health and safety guidelines and toolkits to help them make informed decisions about school reopening. Asaf recently joined us on the podcast, and I started by asking how the changes in the medical community's understanding of the virus has changed the recommendations the group has made to schools. You know, you're seeing science and public health um, in action right now. And, and you know, science is um, inherently data-driven and it, it changes and morphs to new realities and, and, and to, you know, taking the best laid plans and testing them against reality. And, and that has been frustrating and people wonder, okay, well, they used to say something three months ago and now it's different. And that's because we're learning. And when we're in a scientifically fact-based learning system what you know what was true you know a big focus at the beginning on cleaning surfaces and less of a focus on masks is now actually totally flipped we are fundamentally understanding that this is a disease that is based on aerosol transmission in the air in small enclosed spaces rooms this is much less of a disease of that's transmitted by surfaces though it can be transmitted and so we have really changed our focus of public health mitigation strategies as we learn more and then with the new variants which i'm sure we'll talk about we're 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 having to adjust to the fact that we have less than a year of collective human experience and knowledge about this novel virus, um, that we've learned a tremendous amount, but given it's, it's, it's a new disease, essentially, there, is, there are always going to be surprises, and the virus mutates. And so it continues to evade us. As we build strategies, treatments, and vaccines, it's going to build up its armamentarium. And, and, and so there's this dance. Do you have a sense of how many schools and districts have adopted or used the guidelines that you and the Learning Accelerator have uh, put out? And um, tell us a little bit about whether there are certain guidelines that are you know, easier or have been more difficult for school leaders to adopt. 
We worked very closely with a subset of nine school districts, as well as a number of charter schools, both in Massachusetts and outside of Massachusetts. Um, and, and so we can sort of safely say that, you know, it definitely had reach and, and we've received feedback from really all over the country on it and actually even some school systems around the world. But the bottom line is that there are nine health principles. Um, you know, the first bucket at the district level is around leadership and culture, risk stratification and prevention and testing and tracing. Then at the building level, at the school building level, you, we think about screening and triage the way that space is laid out and air quality, and then cohorting and scheduling. And then in the classroom, we think about masks and PPE for students and learners, um, density and distance, and then personal hygiene and space hygiene. So those are the big kind of frame, and, and, and we've seen a lot of uptake, especially in our, in our home state here in Massachusetts. Now, we've seen studies that suggest that schools have not been hotspots for transmission, um, but we're also seeing now reports of a new strain of the coronavirus that is more infectious. How do we try to reconcile you know, between these um, you know, two kinds of results and findings as, as they evolve? Well, you know, this is where it's really important um, that we uh, both look at, at data that, that often might seem conflicting and sort of step back and have a frame for looking at data. So what's the frame? The frame is that schools um, uh, and, and in particular um, children seem to be at lower risk, not no risk, but lower risk of um, uh, getting severe COVID. Now they can still transmit and 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 certainly teachers, you know, being some of them being older are at higher risk. But 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 students themselves do appear, you know, kids between the ages of, uh, you know, especially K through six, K through eight kids are at lower risk. The second frame is that um, what it what is clear from both um, the existing uh, U.S. and European evidence is that when schools take public health principles seriously, when they have um, uh, you know di- adequate distance, adequate air ventilation, when they use masks, when they have cohorting protocols, etc that schools do not appear to be major sites of um, community transmission. Now, there are certainly have been school transmission. There will always be school transmission because it's gathering human beings together. But there haven't been uh, there haven't been blips in the data to suggest that those those states or locales that open their schools more um, if they undertook the safety mechanisms had worse outcomes, worse transmission or death rate. Now, what's also important to know is that as COVID increases in the community, it will increase in schools. And so there is no magic number above which we say, oh, the schools have to be shut down or they absolutely can be fully open. And, and so it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's really a, a sort of push-pull, a risk-benefit analysis district by district, community by community, how well can they adhere to these public health principles? How well, um, you know, where, in which direction is their COVID? Um, uh, are their COVID numbers going? You know, if they're shooting through the roof as they were in New York City and Boston in the spring, 
those are times when, you know, it might not be um, safe to have a, a ton of in-person learning. But if transmission is steady or falling, if people can adhere to the public health principles, you know, the, the accumulated data is that for both um, students and and teachers that schools are not um, a, a much higher risk place than you know um, other essential functions in the community and that gets us to the final quick point, which is that you know we ha- we have to really think about schools in a, in a complex risk and, and, and balance because it's not just COVID we're trying to present, prevent and learning we're trying to maximize. There are many critical societal and health functions that schools have in terms of food security, in terms of emotional well-being, in terms of reducing mental health problems, in terms of helping um, to, to uh, access and find kids who are at risk of abuse or violence, all sorts of things that that really promote student well-being that schools are intricately involved in that when you close them down they increase as well so so th- the calculus has been incredibly complex do we know much so far about these new variants of the virus that may um and you know whether or not ch- uh, children and young young people may be more uh, susceptible to them we, we, we know the following. We know that there are two sort of main clusters of variants. Um, one is in um, the United Kingdom and the other is in South Africa. Now, there, there are other variants across the world and we will learn more uh, um, of new ones. But those are the, the, the South African and the British ones are the ones that we're watching closest. The, the British one is important because it appears to clearly be more transmissible, which means that it could be 30 or even 50% more transmissible than the main ver- um, strains uh, floating around the U.S. And that means that more people per interaction will get the virus. Now, the virus itself, whether it's also more lethal, it is not clear. The early reports of the British variant were that it, it is no more severe or lethal, but it just causes more harm because of more accumulated infections. Um, the British government just yesterday seemed to suggest they have some preliminary data that it might be um, more cause more severe disease. So we will follow that. Now, the, the South African variant um, is also more transmissible. It appears to likely be more severe, and it has one other problem, which makes us quite nervous about it, which is that um, it appears, unlike the, um, the British variant, to be less responsive to some of our therapies, like monoclonal antibodies. And so that gets us concerned. Um, that has already gotten the vaccine folks looking at whether both um, both variants respond to the vaccine. There's good early evidence that the British variants are, the vaccine covers them equally. Um, in evidence, literally yesterday, and this, Tony, is how fast this field is changing, uh, the South African variants have, um, in, they induce um, with people who are vaccinated, less of an antibody response, but still probably enough antibodies to protect us. So what does this all mean for schools? Because I know your listeners are, are really focused on schools. It means that we will be spending a lot of time this spring, this summer, thinking and talking about variants. That means that it's likely that the British variant and maybe, you know, and less likely, um, but possible that the South African variants will be the dominant strains, so to speak, in the U.S. by the spring. And given that that's the case, 
um, and that they're both more transmissible. This pushes the, the, the need for us to get as many people as vaccinated as possible. We are in a race right now between vaccine distribution and between these variants becoming more common. And while we've maybe plateaued and starting to see fall in cases across the U.S., maybe, hopefully, um, that could turn right back around if these, if these new strains you know, take hold and have a big impact on schools because like in the UK, they're talking about closing schools until Easter because of the, the transmissibility of these variants. Now, if we can vaccinate enough people, prevent these strains uh, or at least stretch it out a little bit longer such that they don't get to the US and, and become dominant in April, but maybe later, you know, we have a much better chance of, get, of really continuing the fall in cases. And, you know, to everybody's most important question, when do we get back to normal or normal-ish, you know, have a chance at, let's say, you know, much more in-person or full in-person schooling next fall or maybe even late spring. Right. As you put it, this is a race between vaccination, distribution, and the, and the variants uh, continuing to, to, to spread. Now, in the U.S., President Biden has said that he wants to reopen schools within 100 days of his administration, which would be about the end of April, I believe, if my math works out. Um, based on what you know about current vaccination efforts so far, do you think that's feasible? You know, I think it is for many or most communities. Um, as a scientist and doctor, I, I'll give you the proverbial but or if a number of things are met. Um, so, you know, we're entering the phases soon with vaccine distribution in which teachers and other um, essential frontline personnel will be getting the vaccine, you know, in in February and March. And, you know, um, I, I really encourage, you know, people to, to, to get the vaccine. I, I just actually got my second shot this morning and it, you know, it enables me to see patients uh, more safely, not spread things to them. And, um, you know, the rates of, of, of um, bad side effects have been really low. Now, that doesn't mean zero, but that means very low. And so if people have questions, they should talk to their doctors about it. But, but this is a safe vaccine that's, that looks really effective. And so getting it to 100 million, getting 100 million doses, meaning getting it to the People who need it most from the point of view of, of, of illnesses and age, as well as exposure risk, like, you know, teachers and bus drivers and other frontline personnel, is critical. And that's the key part of enabling reopening of schools. But there's another part of this, Tony, that's really important, which is that this virus, like most coronaviruses, spreads more efficiently in the winter, in dry, colder air for most of the country. And in times when people congregate indoors more and for whatever reasons that, you know, flus and cold viruses spread more efficiently in these winter months in the northern hemisphere. By April, you know, and certainly May, you, the, the change in, in weather plus the continued drive toward vaccination plus people's continued need to take masking and distancing seriously plus you know a more coordinated federal and state response utilizing all you know mechanisms of government and public private partnerships 
will be a set of convergent factors that should, unless these variants beat us to it, that should continue to drive cases downward. So you're going to have more people who are at risk vaccinated. You're going to have probably lower caseload. And you're going to have an environment in which we now know the playbook on how to generally have safe schools opening. So I think educators and education leaders need to watch the data closely, but be, be thinking and be planning on maybe they could get a few good months of in-person learning in. I know this is a big issue in education, but I'm just going to say it from our healthcare perspective. Maybe they think about school or school activities during parts of the summer to try to make up for lost learning. Um, you know, we've lost so much this year, and, 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 you know, I think we need to think expansively of how we try to regain some of that back. Based on what you've seen so far about the administration and distribution of vaccines, are there any um, challenges or hurdles so far right now as, uh, as it relates to getting them uh, to educa- educators and district uh, you know, school workers? They're massive challenges, Tony. I mean, I'll just be upfront about it. You know, um, we do not have one centralized vaccine distribution delivery plan. Um, I'm not even sure one could say we have 50 um, or more, including uh, U.S. territories. Um, This is a very complex space right now where you have some uh, states jetting ahead and doing a really good job with their allocated um, vaccine doses. Um, but there's not, because no, everyone is not on the same timeline, uh, we're seeing a classic American heterogeneous, highly variable, bright spots and less than bright spots kind of um, uh, situation. Um, I do think more coordination is on the way. Um, But I think that for educators, this is, um, you know, we know that some states, they have, you know, a central vaccine um, administration website. You go on there, you're either eligible or not. It tells you where to go. Fantastic. In other states, like mine, it's much more complicated. It's much more heterogeneous. It's more local based. It's some through the health system, some through mass vaccine sites, some through um, primary care. I think that um, the message to educators is, number one, get vaccinated. Number two, um, education leaders need to need to help their staff, their employees find the best ways. And the best ways are going to be different in different states. Some states may send you to stadiums to get vaccinated and others it might be faster and easier through primary care. And yet others may be through local public health boards. So people uh, um, need to be, um, I think, patient, but um, urgently focused on basically, you know, uh, finding a a multiplicity of ways to get this vaccine into arms. I I wish I could tell you it were simpler, but it's still complicated. Some have said that, uh, suggested that children should be vaccinated before they can go to schools. What's your, what's your take on that? Because that would just delay a lot, right? If that was a precondition for reopening schools. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, my, my hope is that we're going to have data from the trials in children to kind of give us, um, you know, ideally uh, the confidence that, that, you know, that there is going to be a pediatric shot that we can administer. And, and I, I mean, my, 
you know, if I, if my dream, my hope would be, you know, we could administer over the summer and have many, if not most kids vaccinated for the fall. Now, Tony, that may or may not happen. Um, I, I think that the key, uh, getting back to kind of principles we've learned about COVID is that we get adults and those at high risk vaccinated first and then figure out again, where does the evidence take us and show us on the effectiveness and safety in kids. Um, I do think that these vaccines will eventually, at least some of them, if not all of them, will be shown to be, you know, effective in kids. But we await the formal trials. You know, I follow the data because we're science-based. I do think that if we are in a situation in the late summer where, you know, most or all teachers who want to be vaccinated, and I certainly hope all of them want to be vaccinated, have the vaccine, where we've got high-risk folks in our community vaccinated, where we're nearing herd immunity, that sort of proportion of people who've either, you know, who've been immunized um, and or had had COVID before, and it's approaching 70 to 85%, like Dr. Fauci is saying, you know, um, we are going to, to be able to reopen schools with a majority, if not all, in person. Now, if we're part of the way there, then I think that that we should still reopen schools on the basis of the data we have today. Um, And then we'll probably have to extend out the amount of time we have to have these mitigating uh, uh, principles, you know, the masks, the distancing, things like that, uh, longer until we get, you know, to the herd immunity and or the kids vaccinated. So, I think it would be great if we if that vaccination process starts over the summer for kids, but it's not, in my opinion, um, going to be a reason not to have a return to in-person school in the fall, provided that adults and frontline folks are are are, um, are vaccinated. Now, one of the things that's perhaps unique or maybe not unique in the American education system is that you have a lot of different education stakeholders, whether it's parents, teachers, the unions, or politicians. And one of the things that I've seen is that they, they, they all seem to maybe express different levels of standards for when it's safe enough to bring kids back into school. I mean, as a, as a researcher, would you say there, there is more or less an objective standard guided by science that people should follow or, or perhaps does it frustrate you that some of your uh, the scientific and database approach will always be subject to political or personal or cultural headwinds? Well, it's a great question. I mean, uh, there is an, um, a strong and emerging fact base and scientific base uh, of information on, on COVID, on public health strategies, on schools, it's not perfect, um, but it, it's 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 getting better by the day. Um, you know, having been in public health, you know, twenty years and and medicine for about the same amount of time, I can tell you that you know your best laid uh, public health or medical plans, you know, have to be refracted through the lens of, of context of, of different groups with different interests and different viewpoints. And so it's never as simple as sort of giving people facts and they, they have to follow it, especially in a time right now, quite frankly, in this country where, you know, the, the whole basis of, of what are facts, what is truth is challenged um, by so many groups from so many parts of the spectrum. Now, that said, um, you know, I do 
we have seen, and, and it has been illuminating, you know, that the, um, the ways in which uh, different groups of people involved in education have looked at the same data in different ways. And, um, you know, I, I, there is clearly something about schools and, you know, the fact that they, that they perform such critical functions in our community, that they are places where, you know, our most precious parts of society, you know, children spend so much time where teachers who valiantly, you know, my mom's a teacher, you know, valiantly sort of give themselves of service. I, I get that it, 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 it brings forth big, um, uh, emotions often well-meaning, but sometimes pretty, you know, strident. I think we need to move forward, especially as we have more information about, you know, and less guessing over time, especially around, you know, with public health principles, masking, distance, uh, ventilation, et cetera. You know, it's pretty clear that especially in places that have fallen COVID rates, schools are generally safe and um, vaccines will make them safer. Um, we should always hear different um, takes on that sort of set of ideas and facts um, and work together. Um, and I hope that we see more convergence for the sake of our kids and our educators, um, especially later in this spring and, and in this fall, so we can get people back in school. Uh, Nasaf, my final question is, how, how much of the, uh, the COVID-19 safety protocols that are around today that your team has published, how, how, how much longer do you think schools will need to keep them in place for the foreseeable future, you know, even after vaccinations are, uh, are rolled out and it's, and it's safe to return? Um, it's hard to see um, the, the, the protocols not being kept in place through the summer, at the very least. You know, I, I, I mean, maybe we will have miraculously falling rates, but I just don't see it. Um, um, we won't have enough people vaccinated by the spring to sort of stop masking and distancing, etc. Um, whether we're still wearing masks and doing a lot of this stuff in the fall um, is really dependent on, I think, you know, uh, what proportion of the population is vaccinated. My my personal guess is I think that kids and educators in most places will probably return with masks and some modified forms of distancing, maybe not as intense or as spread out now, and maybe some of the things will be relaxed. But I think masks and ventilation in particular, um, I, I think, are here with us maybe till, you know, later in, in the late fall or early winter would be my best guess until we really can kind of get to that 75th and 85th percentage of the population um, and, and really start to see COVID case numbers be vanishingly rare. And all of this assumes that, uh, you know, the variants don't come in and sort of um, uh, rain on our party here. So, you know, while I am optimistic, um, I think that one has to keep a, um, eyes wide open around what we know and what we don't know and, um, and, and let science and facts and, and um, sort of lead us uh, to the best decisions possible. What gives you hope? Let's leave with a message of hope. What gives you hope and optimism that we are going to get through this without any major setbacks or surprises? You know, we we have accomplished as a as a society, you know, an amazing feat of you know building, testing, and and um, now delivering 
vaccines that are amongst the, the, the best ever built in terms of the, the, their, their, their efficacy. And we did that in, in less than 11 months. Um, the vaccine rollout, yeah, it's clunky and it's annoying, but you know we're, we're vaccinating at rates that are comparable to only a couple of other countries in the world right now. Um, we have, I think, wind in our sails, a sense of coordination behind a playbook around what works and what's safe for in-person schooling that, you know, um, that I think there's a lot of convergence on. And I think we have now understood, as um, unfortunately maybe sometimes ignored it outside of education, how important in-person schooling is for students and educators, how critical it is for communities and parents and the economy and nutritional health and, and mental health. And so we have all these sort of um, strong currents in the right direction um, with effective vaccines to get us to our common goal, which is, you know, to take our kids and, uh, and have our educators walk into schools some point next, hopefully fall, you know, and, and just say, yeah, we're back. We're doing this together. School is in. I mean, I don't think you're ever going to see kids and teachers so excited to just have a regular boring school day. I mean, my kids are just like, that's their wish. They don't want anything more. They want to be back in school every day with their friends and their teachers learning in community with each other. And I think of that simple vision. And if COVID teaches us to appreciate simplicity and and just the beauty of of things that we previously took advantage you know for granted um taking your kids to school and not worrying about a pandemic you know being able to not worry if your hospitals are going to be overloaded going to a restaurant or a movie theater i mean those are the things that give me hope because we will get there it's only a matter of time and and um i do feel it's a very different moment than, than last year. So I, I am optimistic, if, if you can hear that in my voice. Great. I think we, can, we, we all feel that, and we're all, we're, all, we're all along with you. All right, Asaf, thank you so much for joining the Ad Search podcast this week. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Tony. It's been a pleasure to be on with you. I'm Tony Wan, and this has been the Ed Search podcast. Each week, we feature real conversations like this one. So please subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. This episode was edited and produced by my colleague, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Till then.